Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're excited to have back uh, Sean Linehan. This is uh, Sean's third time uh, on, on the podcast and in front of a live audience, the the On Deck Fellowship uh, cohort. Uh, Sean, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Sean, uh, you're the co-founder and CEO of, of Placement. Uh, why don't we talk about uh, how you navigated the idea maze? You, you left Flexport, I think almost spent you know eight months thinking about what you wanted to do next. We're thinking about different ideas. We're thinking about different co-founders. Of course, that's you know, the phase that the On Deck community is in. Why don't you walk us through uh, your path and uh, lessons learned that uh, you can that would should apply to other other people in that phase? Yeah, this was one of the more fun times that I've had professionally. So I spent just about four years at Flexport. Did a crazy growth stint there. We went from twenty employees to about a thousand, a million in cumulative revenue to a half a billion. I then left, let the company go do its next phase, the the sort of big company thing. And when I left, I wasn't sure what specifically I was going to do next, but I knew that it was very likely to be startups or otherwise most likely founding something. So the first thing I did was just take a break. So I took a couple months off to recover from burnout after that crazy growth trajectory. I was definitely burnt out. So that was step number one. During that period, what I did was I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time exercising. I spent a lot of time networking with interesting people. And that sort of laid the foundation for then ultimately deciding to go all in on trying to find the next opportunity. The thing that sort of really struck me was there was a blog post, I think it was by Sam Altman called How to Be Successful. And one of the things that he talks about in that blog post was about the exorbitant benefit that comes from having patience in your career. So one of the things that he, that he mentioned was he said, look, the, just because you're ready for your next thing doesn't mean that the, the next best thing is ready for you. And I'm paraphrasing, but that really struck me. And it struck me because, you know, there are oper- like the realm of good opportunities where you're the right founder and the market is in the right place. There's no other competitors. That like matching zone is really small. And so as a person who's about to dedicate, ideally, you know, 5, 10, 15 years of your life to a new venture, you'd rather make sure that that fit is just right so you don't miss and waste a bunch of your your time. And so what I started doing was two things. One, I started just spending time with every other person that I could find that wasn't also those sort of in-between gigs. I mean, OnDeck has really formalized this. Uh, which is great. You all are in a a wonderful community to be able to do sort of what I had manufactured myself um, and ultimately actually did do on deck uh, near the the tail end of this this sort of journey. But what I was doing was I was collecting ideas. I had a big spreadsheet of ideas that I sort of just like, it was like my dumping ground. I had like 50 of them. And I started hanging out with other people who also had their own 50 idea long spreadsheets. And what's fascinating, I'm I'm sure a lot of folks on deck have experienced this, is a lot of the things that I was thinking about, other people were also immediately thinking about. 
And there's this sort of hive mind of the technology industry where sort of all at once, there's a lot of concurrent innovation and invention all at the same time. And, you know, the best thing you could do is go find the other people that also just invented that same idea, you know, within a, the last two months and, and work with them or at least brainstorm with them. So I started doing was, you know, jumping on some ideas and just starting building and seeing if I could actually come up with something that felt compelling, shopping that out to the smartest people that I knew. And then also, you know, sort of trying it on before talking about it publicly or, or anything like that. And I went through a couple different businesses. I actually launched a couple different products in my time in between Flexport and Placement. But the thing that I was looking for was one, I was looking for, do smart people that I want to work with want to work on this? Do they think that it's compelling? Do they feel com like, do they want to talk about it? Are they asking more about it? If I, you know, tell them like, let's jam on this, are they interested? Two, can I find early stage customers for this? Does anybody care? Like, does my target audience care? And three, when I start talking to, you know, venture capitalists about this, are they interested, right? Because the best business will have the smartest people wanting to work on it, customers desperate to have it, and investors desperate to give you money to work on it. And of the early things that I had experimented with, you know, none of them had that. Like one of them, for example, was a app that was a meta search engine across all of your cloud apps. Um, there's a company that's now doing this called Command K. It looks really good. But when I when I started shopping it out to the people that I knew, nobody thought it was interesting. Nobody wanted to work on it with me. Everybody thought it was dead boring. Um, I everyone was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be useful, but like, no way am I interested in that. So it's just clearly, you know, I, if I can't get my smartest friends to work on it, I'm I'm not interested in in working on it. Um, partially, the act of starting a company for me is, you know, it's a selfish way to surround myself with the the smartest people whom I like uh, and whom I want to spend time with in an environment that we totally get to design and, and manufacture. And so if the smartest people that I want to work with don't want to work on the thing, it's not worth spending the time. So with placement, what actually happened was I wound up coming up with the, a sort of early draft of what is now the placement business. And I sort of started talking to a handful of people who I was co-founder dating. And, you know, I sort of had like you know, three, four people who I, was, who I was sort of doing this with, where I was just sitting around jamming on ideas with them, trying stuff out, working on little projects. And so I shopped this one out to a handful of people, one of whom was Katie Kent, who is my, uh, my actual co-founder. And of the people that I, that I talked to about it, she was the one that was like, oh my God, I know everything about this. Let me tell you how to make this idea 10x better. And we just started like jamming on it. And it was so infectious, her passion for the problem space and the expertise that she brought to the table that, you know, everybody else I was working with sort of like couldn't match that energy. And, you know, it wasn't like formal. It's kind of like dating. Sometimes you like, you go on a date and you just sort of n neither side cares. Let's go to one, one by one. On the idea side, how much of it was bottoms up versus, versus tops down? And, what, you know, for any idea, uh, I guess what, what gave you the confidence to pursue it versus um, versus put one down. Was it was it customer feedback? Was it you, know, you mentioned recruiting? But how do you really know when to when to pursue? Because sometimes it's it's sort of blurry. Yeah. Well, on the the top down versus bottom up thing, the sort of brief way that I would define those things is top down is I'm looking at an industry. I'm sort of doing the the MBA thing. I you know see the world in a particular state and for whatever reason believe that it should be in another state, independent of uh, of any particular consumer or customer saying a thing. 
bottoms up the opposite way. Somebody, you know, normal people or, or businesses that are my target audience just tell me they want a thing. And I say, oh, wow, somebody must want that thing. Um, and maybe the, I sort of broaden it uh, based on, you know, my own knowledge. You know, it's hard to say. I tend to ideate based on just my own problems. I think that that works really well. I also tend to ideate based on what problems I see in the world. But, you know, the, the, the sort of one of the, I'd say almost even like problems that I have is that I start with this tiny little problem, this little thing that's just gnawing at me or a little question. And I just sort of start to dig at it and dig at it and dig at it and dig at it. And in a very short period of time, I all of a sudden have this you know, very broad scope idea of how I think like the next 10 years of this industry is going to be because I just thought about it for however long. And so it sort of starts with like a little kernel of the bottoms up thing. And then I just keep asking them the question, like, what must be true? What must be true? What must be true? And if all that's true, how has the world changed? And so it, I would say it starts with the bottoms up thing and then ultimately ends up at this sort of macro vision. In terms of evaluating what's worth working on, there's sort of a handful of different uh, sort of variables that I, I was judging things on. First and foremost, it was, do I care? For just straight up, do I care, right? Like if I don't care, it's just not worth working on. You can't sustain interest. I mean, perhaps the most money-grubbing, greedy people you know can you know sacrifice their lives in pursuit of material wealth. I just don't care about stuff enough to do that. Like I actually want to work on interesting stuff and solve real problems in the world. And so, you know, I come up with lots of stupid ideas, lots of ideas that like aren't, you know, meaningful or aren't aligned with my principles or whatever that just get sort of chucked out at the first, the first uh, pass. Second is, you know, it's like really this, this question of, is there a, a critical path to this thing existing, right? I, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who have this incredible vision for a business that can work at scale and have no idea on what the first step is. And it's not enough to have a grand idea of what something at scale can look like. You actually have to get there. And unless you are the most reputable people in the Valley, which in which case, like you aren't sitting in, you know, like, it's just like you're, you have very different problems. You don't need my advice. You know, like you actually have to have a critical path where you can start with something small and have it eventually become very big. Um, You don't get to start at the end. You have to start at the beginning and trace the path to the end. And so you know, those, th- th- that's sort of the thing that the two first things is like, am I interested? Can I see a viable path for this thing to, ex- to come into existence? You know, at this point, I might just start like screwing around and like mocking something out and, you know, maybe doing a little bit of coding, playing with it, talking to people, shopping it around with, you know, smart people, and then start to talk to potential customers, right? Once you have something that is, you know, worth talking about. And this can be sort of hard you know, one of the things, if you're not already embedded in an industry or embedded with a customer base, you sort of have to get in the game to figure out how to, to even like get in a lot of conversations with people in a serious way. You know, that sort of early stage MVP, just ship it research can like kind of work, but it's not, it's, it's hard. It's not super high signal. Like the best thing you can do is just ship. And so if you can find a way to ship something super small, super fast, um, that is indeed on the critical path, then, you know, that helps. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the next thing is become recruiting. Can I find people that care? And, and the other things I already said. What was the thread you kept on pulling with, with placement in terms of like, you know, what this future has to be or what, what has to, you know, what has to be true, et cetera? Well, the, the, the thread started with a conversation that you actually introduced me to with a guy named Patrice Friedman. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know him, but I had coffee with him and he was telling me about this sovereign cities initiative 
that he was working on. He, he has a, a new fund called Pronomos Capital that, that sort of invests in creating charter cities. That got my mind thinking while I was, while I was sitting there, I was thinking, you know, how are you going to get people to move to these charter cities? Like perhaps you can use an ISA to finance their relocation and get them, you know, basically de-risk the move for them. In that world, I was thinking, if you, if you were going to do that for a charter city, do you, like, do you need to do that for a charter city? Like maybe you do it just in America. Like America has broad uh, disparities in terms of economic situations across its very vast geography. And so perhaps there are, you know, risk-free, uh, financially risk-free moves that people could make. And so then I started thinking about it and I was like, okay, so, you know, what if I moved somebody from, you know, rural America to, you know, a better booming labor market and just sort of helped finance that relocation? But then you think, well, like it's quite ris- risky. You know, what if they move and, and they can't get the job? And you start thinking, well, what if we actually just help them get the job? And you keep pulling and you're like, well, what does it mean to help people get the job? What's that bundle of services look like? And, you know, we started like specking that out, which point you realize like, wow, like actually if we just built just that part, that alone is super valuable combined with the geographic location aspect of it is even more valuable. And then you start thinking, you know, well, what if talent, what if people just had a talent agent, period? Like why, why aren't we being represented? Right. And you start to ask that question and you start to realize, well, look, like a lot of people in the economy used to be represented by unions and they just aren't anymore. Well, why aren't they represented by unions? Well, it's because the the fundamental shape of the U.S. labor market changed. We went from an industrial economy, which was you know pretty heavily, you have like a very small number of large employers going to battle with a very small number of unions and just sort of duking it out. But in the the knowledge economy, work gets done in the city. That sort of monopolistic duking it out stops being relevant. But what you realize also is that, okay, so the business model of the labor unions, by and large, doesn't make sense anymore. The sort of monopolistic negotiation is irrelevant. But the labor unions used to bring a lot more value than just negotiations. And there's no institution that stepped up to fill that value or to fill that gap. And so now, you know, we then started thinking, well, how can we become that institution, right, that fills the gap? that helps people navigate between career choices, that helps people figure out what their skills are worth, that helps people negotiate, though, in a very different structure than the unions used to. And that's sort of how we wound up with the big idea, as opposed to the the small idea, which was I was going to use my personal capital to relocate some people. (laughs) Totally. Now now let's... uh walk through the, the co-founders a little bit deeper. So you said you had this process where you sort of shopped it around, you know, to different co-founders. Uh, maybe walk through m- more what, what that looks like or what you might recommend to others. Uh, and then uh, in terms of uh, the sort of dating process, but then also in terms of the, what are you looking for process? And of course, you know, Kate had enthusiasm, but, but w- what else is important in terms of great, great co-founding teams? Yeah. Well, so there, the, the enthusiasm is one thing the get things done nature of a person is another thing which is when you put this idea in front of them how fast do they just start doing things as opposed to just wanting to talk about it and you know i spent a lot of time i had sort of the privilege of having you know done the the trajectory that i had done prior to placement at at flexport I, i got to go spend time just hanging out with a bunch of smart people around the valley And there's a lot of people who are doing other things. So they're busy, but they're happy to talk about stuff. That makes sense. There's also a lot of people who 
aren't busy, but don't want to do anything because they're already very successful and, and don't need to. They're happy to talk about stuff. And there's people that like have a lot of money that are investing and want to talk about stuff, but also don't want to do stuff. So you can, you can spend a lot of time talking to people who have no intention of, of taking any action that, you know, you got to rule those people out or you can still talk to them, but you know, they're not going to be co-founders. Other thing I was looking for was what does somebody bring to the table that I don't bring to the table, right? Or that they bring to the table and I bring something different than them. You just, you don't want to be the same because it's just not a good use of the equity, frankly, right? If you have two people with completely overlapping skills, that's just not a good setup, right? I mean, you're going to have to hire every single other function eventually. You'd rather have to do that you know, later as opposed to from the jump. So yeah, having different skills. Also, you just like, you'd rather, you know, when there's a bunch, there's 10 problems to be solved, you'd rather naturally, you know, you jump on five and your co-founder jumps on the other five, as opposed to you both jumping on the same five and the, the you know, other five just going completely to the wayside. Other things, depending on the business, you know, just straight up direct expertise. So Katie previously was the director of outcomes at Galvanize, which is a large ed tech player. She literally ran a job placement program. Uh, she's like literally done this before. And so we accelerated our learning by years because she didn't have to learn, which that meant I didn't have to learn. She just got to do the work um, and teach me along the way. So yeah, I mean, just to, to sort of summarize, you want somebody that's ready right now to go and get things done. You want somebody who has um, a different set of skills than you. And also you want somebody who has domain expertise that you that you don't necessarily have. If I had to throw in a bonus, very important bonus, sort of table stakes bonus goes without saying, like you gotta like the person. If you don't like and respect your co-founder, this is just a very, very bad setup. It's just not gonna, it's not gonna work. Yeah, and how did you sort of think about, uh, you know, culture, it's one thing sort of like personally, but just align on values or ways to work together. Are you a believer in personality tests or anything else in terms of uh, assessing that pretty quickly? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I do believe in personality tests. I think that's a super weird way to start a relationship for me. But if you're the type of person who really likes personality tests and you think that like psychometrics are super important and quantifying everything is, is critical, then, you know, there's signal in finding a co-founder who is aligned on that as a methodology. <laughs> Personally, I didn't, I didn't do that. With, with Katie, it was easy because we already worked together she was on the, the product team at Flexport, so I already understood deeply what she was all about. So that helped. But you know, I think you can spend uh, just time working on something with somebody and understand what they're like uh, pretty quickly. I think, yeah, like, like humans are really good at this. It's just like understanding people, whether or not you have this sort of you know, emotional acuity to... to identify the specific way that you're feeling and act upon that and not let your sort of desire to move forward on the business stand in the way of you making good decisions about somebody uh, leaving that aside. Like people actually are pretty good at judging people. Um, I have seen in the hiring process over and over and over again, you know, people have the red flags before they hire the person who ultimately doesn't work out. 
but you know, they were too, they were in a rush or, you know, they, they thought maybe, maybe they got a bad read or something, but you know, I sort of am in the, like, you could pretty good judge people pretty quickly. Totally. And how did you think about, uh, first hires, uh, or, or talk about sort of you, what you, your lessons learned on, uh, on, you know, super early stage hiring. Yeah. The early people that you hire are your company, right? When you, as a founder, you can believe that you get to set the culture, but you, you, and you do in some respect, but you don't by just getting to sort of say what it is. The way that you set the culture is by explicitly hiring people who represent the culture that you want your company to become. And you don't get to sort of shape people generally, you get to select people. Uh, and that it's the act of selection that you use to sort of create the, the culture in that, I mean, you just have to be super picky. So one of the reasons why I think college entrepreneurs rarely work out is because they just don't have a network of people to pull from that they can start a company with and have as early hires. It just, it is so valuable to have had worked in a place that produces high output talent, to have worked side by side with them and understood what they're like, and then be able to go on to the next thing with them, right? I worked with hundreds of very smart people at at Flexport on the product and engineering team. I worked with people who were unreasonably competent, but whom personally I wouldn't want to do an early stage startup with. That's a really good thing to know, right? Of the hundred engineers that were on the team, you know, there's maybe five that I thought would make a good fit for an early stage startup. If you're hiring cold, you don't know anybody. It's just a lot riskier, right? Because competence and the way that somebody behaves, yeah, it's just harder, right? Like when you're doing a co-founder dating thing, you get to like jam and like spend a ton, a ton of time with them. If they're not willing to spend that time, then they're just a bad co-founder. But when you're hiring somebody, it's like a little different. Like there's only so much time you can spend with somebody uh, to to evaluate them. Um, Though I would say whatever process you ran at a big company, don't run that at your small company. Like just like straight up start working with people uh, as much as possible. Spend way more time in the interview process than you think you should. The other things I'll say is like, having a co-founder is useful because at any given moment, one of you probably is or should be going almost full-time on hiring when you're at that stage. Before you're hiring people, just don't think about it at all. Once you're at that stage, like you kind of just got to go all in on filling the roles, talking with people, doing the thing. All like We talked to a lot of incredible people, right? Really talented people whom in a different context, we thought, wow, like this person could very much succeed in this role, but we're just not sure that we want them to shape the culture at the level that, that they're going to, right? So for me, I was looking for people who were very entrepreneurial, that when a problem was put in front of them, they're going to jump on it and they were going to solve it. And I wasn't going to have to like manage them because I don't have time to be a strict manager, right? Event, the time for that will come uh, where you have people in your company who need to be managed. Ideally, it's not when your company is only three or four people, right? If you're four people and one of the people on that team is spending a bunch of time managing one or two of the other people on that team, that's just, you probably should just get rid of the people, right? <laughs> just have your best people there not managing anybody. Yeah, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, when you're hiring in the early stages, like the cost of somebody being bad is super high. Um, like they just totally kill your company. 
uh, when you're a later stage, the cost of somebody being bad is pretty low. You have somebody in a role, whatever, if they're low performers, who cares? But if one third of your team is a low performer, that's just not going to work, right? Like that just means your team is low performing. So yeah, I just be extremely picky. You probably, that whatever urgency you're feeling around hiring, it's not worth sacrificing for even a B plus player in their early days. Um, and that number, that like, you know, grading regimen, whatever, it's totally like finger to the, to the air uh, fuzzy, but for the role that you're hiring, you want to hire somebody who's the best in the world at that role. I will continue my, my rant for just one last point, which is just because somebody says you need to hire the best person in the world for the role doesn't mean that you need to hire the best person in the world in their discipline. So if you need to hire, for example, the best uh, React, if, if you're building a React app and you want to hire the best React engineer in the world, that doesn't mean you want to hire the guy that works or gal that works on the React kernel, right? Because that person probably isn't solving problems that you have. You want to find somebody who's the best in the world at the sort of domain that you actually care about. You're like You don't necessarily want to hire somebody who is tremendous at writing algorithms if what you need to do is build web apps. Um, like their competence in this deep technical domain doesn't help your startup. It might help your ego, but it doesn't help your startup. And what you really want is somebody who's going to help your startup. Totally. And how do you think about uh, compensation? What's your sort of philosophy uh, behind, behind that? So I've thought a ton about this. The way that I basically look at it is pre-seed, uh, it's basically whatever you can negotiate. Like that person's basic, before, before you've raised any money, that basic person's basically a co-founder. Whether you give them the co-founder title is your decision, not mine, whatever you negotiate, it's sort of anything goes. There's no rationality here. Once you've raised some money, the way I look at it is, you know, if you want a really strong team, you should pretty much just straight up tell people that they can't be in it for cash. Like as a seed stage startup, if someone comes in and they're like, yeah, I need 150 to start. This is just like, no way, dude. Like that's just not going to happen. It's not that you maybe couldn't do it, but if someone comes in with that level of expectation and that level of sort of personal agenda when they're employee zero through you know 10, it's just unlikely that that person's going to have the commitment to the mission that you need at that stage. So first off, you know, you basically level and say, look, like there's two numbers that you need to decide. There's the amount of the amount that this person is worth in the market on an all cash basis, like holding aside the equity conversation. What are they worth per year? Right? Like what would they fetch if if they were going to take no equity? Okay. And then there's the number that they're willing to take on cash, whatever they need to survive or to be comfortable was actually the way that I would look at it is they, you know, you don't want your employees to be desperate for money. You don't want them thinking about money. You also don't want them to feel flush um, because that means that you're burning way more cash than you probably should as a super early stage risky venture. But so you have this, these two numbers, you have the number that they're, that they're worth and the number that you're, that you're going to pay them. And then you have this gap in between. And a lot of people at the early stages basically say, hey, look, like my equity is, is worthless or, oh, equity is free or, oh, it's, it's a lottery ticket. It is a lottery ticket. It's not worthless. And it's also not impossible to price. So if you've already raised a seed round or any type of funding, your equity already has a price. And so the way that I think about it is, okay, 
the equity that I'm going to pay somebody in the short run is going to ideally bridge the financial gap between what they're currently making or what they're worth in the market and what I'm going to pay them using equity and valuing that equity at effectively the price that they would have to pay if they were an investor. So in the offer letters that we've sent to our early employees, we basically said, hey, we're giving you or offering you X dollars in cash and Y shares, which is the equivalent of a Z dollar angel investment in placement. And so, you know, the way that I sort of have structured it in my mind is like you're basically paying them equity for the next two years um, today. You're sort of like pre-committing to the next two years worth of equity. If they stay on longer, you ideally are giving them refresher grants. And yeah, so it's like, you know, you, you, the person, you're not trying to pull an over on somebody. You're, you're trying to figure out what's their fair value. What's the fair value of your shares. And if this person wants to be at what level does this person want to be a sort of investor with their time. And you can just directly map their time investment into a dollar figure and start there. It's like the, it's the only rational way that I could come up with, with how to do this. The benefit of this strategy, by the way, is that means you can slide up and down on the cash scale. So you can, with rational trade-offs that actually make mathematical sense behind them. So one thing that early stage startups will do is they'll say, oh, we'll give you 80K cash, 90K cash, 100K cash. And we're going to give you a different level of equity at each of those uh, levels. Well, how do you choose what level of equity to give? You actually need some reasonable, rational basis for doing that. So anyways, I built a super complex uh, spreadsheet to, to do this for me that like models my cap table and like generates offers for me. So this way I just don't have to think about it. It just is what it is. Maybe I'll open source that at some point. Totally. And we were talking about earlier on, on hiring, how you don't really have time to manage because, you know, you're not like super post product market fit. You know, you just started, started the company a year ago. Today's your anniversary. Congratulations. Woo! Yeah. Placement's uh, a year old today. Amazing. And so yeah, there's sort of this like, you know, pre-product market fit, post-product market fit um, in terms of like, you know, when to scale the team, et cetera, uh, from hiring and, and, you know, putting more money into the company. How, how do you think about really identifying uh, product market fit, you know, false sort of negatives for thinking you have it when you, when you actually don't um, or, or vice versa? If you, if you do have it, you, you will probably know. <laughs> um, but I, I, talk about um, how you think about product market fit. Yeah. It's definitely a, an evolving measure, right? And there's also a, a sort of couple different layers to it. So you can have product market fit in that you people want what you're offering. Uh, you then actually have to also have a, a reasonable business model for that to work. You need the uh, financials of the thing to eventually make sense. Uh, and there's other work that people have done on this, which is like you you wind up with product market fit in a sector or with a particular customer, right? So at Flexport, for example, we had very early product market fit with people who had insanely complicated freight shipments, but we didn't really, we couldn't make a business out of doing that. So we had to keep iterating on the product until we had product market fit with people who had simple shipments so we could actually make a profit. But we did that with small companies. And then we started talking to to bigger companies and shopping out what we had to them. And and they would basically say like, ah, like it would be great if only you had these like 10 other things. And therefore, we just totally didn't have product market fit. So, you know, there's the one thing that uh, Rahul from Superhuman wrote, which just talks about, you know, you, you want to send a survey saying how much, you know, how, whatever it is, it's like, do you, would, you, would you 
how upset would you be if this product went away or something like that? Um, but that's sort of, you know, you kind of have to have customers already to do that. And you actually have to have people who you know, care enough to answer your survey to do that. So that works when, you know, you have really high product market fit. Otherwise, you know, you're probably not getting anywhere. Like you're not getting any particularly useful feedback from non-responses. So yeah, I don't know, dude. It's kind of a complicated one. When you have product market fit in a segment, you are just getting sucked out. Like you can't help yourself. People want your thing. You like feel extraordinary pressure, right? There's this counter or sort of uh, paradoxical thing that happens with success, which is the more successful you become, the harder things get because the pressure ramps up, the complexity ramps up. So when you have that, like, you know, cause all of a sudden you're like kind of freaking out. And if you don't have it there, you know, you, you wind up not having it for any number of reasons. And this is where entrepreneurs are born or at least where good ones are is no one's very few people start with perfect product market fit. And you kind of just have to have a nose for your segment and say like, what is the best way for me to figure out what's not working and go and solve that thing. Totally. That makes sense. And now I'm curious, and we'll transition into a sort of broader conversation about it, but how does COVID affect your business in particular? Mm -hmm. It's complicated. So on one hand, the labor market has totally melted down. We had a bunch of customers have offers rescinded. We had a bunch of customers with interviews canceled. And for about a month there, it sort of looked quite apocalyptic. What we've seen is that the labor market's turned back on. Companies have figured out how to hire remotely, at least the companies that are willing to continue hiring in this, in this new context. And fortunately for us, we're able to just reorient around companies that are continuing to hire. So we, you know, we've built this massive data collection infrastructure that goes and acquires current job listings from across the whole web. And if those job listings get taken down, they're, they're no longer in our pipeline. And so yeah, for us, you know, there was this sort of like drop and then it's sort of coming back online as we get our customers interviews with companies that are hiring, you know. So on the company side, there's a lot fewer companies that are in the market. So it's far more competitive for candidates. On the candidate side, all of a sudden there's way more candidates, right? Um, we're an ISA company, so we, we partner with the candidates. So it's, you know, good for us that there are more people looking for jobs. I think it's bad for the country. I wouldn't, you know, wish for this. I'm not like going to like relish the fact that our business is is succeeding in this downtime. I think that I would much rather have slogged it out in an up market. But yeah, I think our business and our model is is actually quite counter cyclical. Most recruiting companies and contingency recruiters have have conducted large layoffs because companies stop paying placement fees in a down cycle. We don't take placement fees, so yeah, our business is is doing quite well. And then just to go on a tangent for a second, in a post-COVID world, do you think people are going to be less likely to move or do you potentially see yourself evolving that, that side of the business or more likely or how do you think, you know, six months from now, the effects? Right. We've already evolved that business. So we can, we're willing to conduct a national scale job search. Most people can wind up with the largest economic gains by relocating. But with that said, if somebody is rooted in place, and they're in a place that's the right place for their skills, we're still willing to work with them. So the way that we look at it is we're looking at somebody's current earnings versus their potential earnings, given their parameters, that's titles that they're searching for, that's locations that they're willing to work in, 
companies that they're willing to work for potentially. And we're basically seeing if there's a gap that we can help bridge, right? If somebody is in a bad labor market, let's say that they're where I grew up, San Bernardino, California, and they want to be a salesperson. Well, look, salespeople where I grew up make $12 an hour. That's just like, we can't make money working with that person. And if they're not geographically mobile, we're just going to not work with that person. It's just that simple. So for us, we've evolved the value prop. We also work with people to do remote job searches. So we you know, suck in data for remote opportunities. Remote first companies tend to like us where our candidates are quite good at video calls because they're already potentially doing geographically remote job searches. So we're not all in on the relocation case. The technology and process that we've built works even if somebody is just looking for a new job period. And how are you acquiring uh, your customers? Is, is it ads or what, what channels have been most effective? So how are you acquiring them? And then how did you build trust with them initially? Well, so we acquire customers mostly through paid advertisements right now. You know, the, some, some businesses can do that. Some, some can't. Our, our, we found quite a lot of success with those channels and have acquisition costs that, that work for our business. We also then have a whole nother loop of referrals. So people who successfully get placed are very likely to refer somebody that they know, particularly from their workplace. If the place that they currently work is toxic or otherwise you know, falling apart, uh, maybe they just got acquired or, or maybe they just did big layoffs, whatever the context is, there's, there's a good referral component there. The way that we built trust is sort of through our personal brands. So Katie, my co-founder, is extremely credible in terms of her ability to get people hired due to her background. You know, I've obviously spent the last 10 years working very hard to make my resume look good. I look credible to people who would like to get a new job. I look like a person who knows what I'm talking about. We then also had an early press piece in TechCrunch, which was super useful for building credibility. We look real. Um, We've raised money from legitimate institutions. We're associated with angel investors who also lend lots of credibility to us. That was not an accident. That was intentional. We sort of did the party round of angels to sort of try to say, hey, look, we know we're this this new thing, but we're backed by some of the brightest minds in technology. Um, That's not a, you know, it's not a thing that everybody can do, but also that's one of the, the fact that me and Katie could do that was one of the things that made us just right to start this business. Totally. Now, now let's talk about sort of navigating the idea maze in the time that we're in right now. I'm curious, you know, when you're in, if, if there's anything you would have done differently, uh, having started it now based on what you learned, but also just based on the, the environment that we're in and any sort of frameworks or words of wisdom to, you know, uh, people in the Ondek Fellowship who are, who are now navigating the idea maze in this very uncertain time. The fortunate thing about chaos is a lot of opportunity is created in chaos. And if your criteria for success is not 10 or 100 billion, but just that you have a thing that's working, then you're going to thrive in a time like now. There is no line of sight for the next like $10 billion company extrapolating from today because it's extremely hard to know what's going to happen, right? There's a lot of remote work stuff that like looks kind of like it's going to work, but like maybe there's a, a totally negative reaction after this, right? Predicting the future from today is just insanely hard. 
And so you can't, you basically need to like not predict the future. You just need to like execute in the present and keep an eye for like where things are going and be honest with yourself and not try to sort of believe your own hype about what your business is going to be, right? Like sell the hype, do what you got to do. But like the, so much of business success is being willing to just say the things that everybody can obviously see and nobody wants to say, right? It's just like looking at a problem square in the face and saying, that's a problem and not trying to act like it's not. Most people, when they face problems, they hurt so bad that they just go totally numb to them or they've happened so many times that they just can't even see them. Great entrepreneurs see problems and like feel them, get pissed off and solve them, right? And right now there's a ton of problems. Which problem you choose to work on yeah, I feel honestly, it's like a little bit of luck. It's like, which of these problems, like you're going to go work on a problem. There's a 10,000 new ones. You're going to choose one. It's anybody's guess as to whether or not the one that you choose is going to wind up being uh, sustainable in the long term or not. The one framework that I would use is that eventually uh, things sort of revert to the, to the, to the mean so most problems have already been solved in the world and most great companies are just solving the same problem again in a new context with new technology. And so things that are like fundamentally new social constructs basically just don't work almost ever. Like they just very rarely work. Even when they work, they tend to just work in small little niches. And when you expand to all of society, you just sort of revert to whatever currently works just using some new tool. Um, so yeah, I mean, the less clever you are often the more successful you can be. <laughs> so I just keep that in mind. Like think about like Groupon, like Groupon was created in a downtime or a downturn. Why did that work? Well, there was just a bunch of surplus uh, capacity in the services market at the time Groupon was founded. So it was a very timely business and they believed their own hype that they were like the next way that services were going to get sold. But that was just crazy. That was never going to happen um, because eventually the market would recover and, and capacity would go back to normal, which is exactly what happened. And they, you know, they wound up building an okay business, but they sort of did this like jump the shark thing because they tried to think that this like exceptional time was going to be permanent. And it just never was going to be permanent, right? Because like, that's not how the market works. Um, so yeah, so I mean, the only thing that you can be certain about in the long term is that like, you know, eventually there's a reversion to the mean. How whether or not you're going to be in a dominant position when you revert to the mean is is mostly going to be a function of like did you get lucky in choosing uh, what you're working on and two were you adapting in real time as the the sort of market uh, shifts which is it's guaranteed to do. What's your framework for for defensibility in terms of not just picking an idea that has initial traction but that can sustain and grow you know far far easier uh, over time and particularly for sort of a, a operationally intense business. Like, like yours, um, and obviously before you were at Flexport, it was also operational. What's your framework for thinking about uh, defensibility for, for, for what you're working on? I mean, I won't rehash all of the moats that exist in the world. There's people that have just done better work on that than me. The, fundamentally, look, if you're able to start the business at the time that you're starting it, then one of two things must be true. Either you have access to some resource, and it's definitely not an insight, some resource that other people don't have access to. And so therefore, you're able to go do this thing that other people can't do, or other people can do it, and you're going to out-execute them and put up moats behind you. 
Yeah, I mean, the businesses that are the that are in the former category are usually started within large companies. Large companies have access to crazy amounts of capital and resources, and so they they tend to have these sort of uh, pre-existing barriers that they can deploy into new markets. Very rarely do individuals have that. If you like, I have a friend Harshal Goal, who he's the founder of a company called Dendrite. He's just like the smartest person on the planet, and what his business was about was like, can the, can his brain be used to solve a very specific problem? Um, there was probably zero other brains on the planet that can solve the problem that he solved. Like that is a business driven mostly by having access to a resource that nobody else has access to, namely his own mind. Um, if you're not a hyper genius like he is, then what you probably want to do is go run at a, at a problem and, and try to figure out ways to put up barriers. Um, the best barriers are the ones that are in line with your customer's value. So these are so-called network effects businesses, but they're not necessarily even network effects. It's just basically like you don't want to put up barriers that just restrict new entrepreneurs arbitrarily, right? Like this is what you know universities do or lawyers do. They just they put up supply side barriers. What you really want to do is be so damn good, so damn fast at doing what you do that anybody who tries to start right now will be very hard pressed to beat you at your own game. And so in that way, you just sort of have this compounding advantage, right? So with Flexport, for example, there were some regulatory moats, but there was a lot of people that had the same licenses as us. But the thing was, was that we had this vantage point about what digital freight forwarding was going to look like. And we built this moat that just compounded because like, we were already at the vanguard of this thing and we just kept innovating. So other people entered the space and tried to copy us, but who wants to use, you know, the third best digital freight forwarding software when it costs the same as the number one best freight forwarding software? Like nobody wants that. Um, everybody wants the best as long as it's within their price point. And so, yeah, I mean, you want to just be the best at what you do and perhaps accumulate the the sort of, proprietary assets that that fundamentally prevents other people from competing with you in the future, right? Um, I won't say what those are for placement because that's for me to know and for you all to find out in a decade. Yeah, totally. Let's, let's talk about some, some macro ideas related to, to placement a little bit. T- talk about how you see the, the labor market evolving over time to sort of the short-term question, which is, you know, how, how, do, these, how do these jobs bounce back? What does that look like? Um, how, how does that play out? But, uh, but more just the, but then also let's get into sort of medium and long-term sort of separate from COVID re- related stuff, just how, how you saw it playing out, period. Well, a lot of the jobs that have been impacted are in the service economy. This is, I don't need to rehash this. I mean, anybody that's sort of paying any attention will, will know this. You know, waiters, people that are, you know, sort of doing those types of jobs. I don't think that those are gone forever. I don't think that they come back fast. I think that, you know, starting a new restaurant takes a long time. If your business goes to zero, booting it back up takes a long time. It's not like quarantine ends and everybody is back to normal. That's not going to happen. But I don't think that there is a permanent shift in service economy jobs, mostly. What I will say is that during a downturn, big companies need to show strong numbers. What they will tend to do is lay people off. Um, but when the market starts to come back up, you, you now have far fewer people. You probably fired a bunch of people that you didn't actually need, 
or in the interim, technology has gotten good enough to, to just automate their jobs. So I think a lot of the white collar jobs actually go away. Um, this happened in 2008. One of the underappreciated drivers of sort of SaaS dominance and, and tech's status in the world was 2008, where you had these companies have a massive contraction of their labor force and then enter a bull run. And they entered that bull run without the sort of legacy people stack. And they, they just sort of started putting in software, the quote on digital transformation game that led to software companies you know, far outperforming because um, they weren't competing with an existing process. So for, for the people that are in jobs that are able to be automated, I think they should probably go retrain. It's very, you know, it's just like a very difficult, um, competing with you know, zero marginal cost software is it's not a good strategy for anybody. It's just a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, look, I there, there's a great quote from Junius Morgan that says, always be a bull on America. And I'm, I'll always be a bull on America, but the, uh, the shape of the labor market's bound to change. Um, some aspects of that, that all, you know, I think cities aren't dead. Uh, there are some people have tried to pronounce the death of the city. I think they're dead wrong. Uh, I think remote work will be important, but still be under indexed in terms of innovation activities. Innovation does not happen remotely. It, it just doesn't. Um, it can, but the number of people that are good at that type of thing is still very, very small. And the tech still isn't very, very good. Um, I think it's going to grow faster than it was previously, but like still cities are going to be the dominant place that people work. Um, the returns to knowledge continue to grow. Being low skilled continues to you know, produce stagnation. The, the uh, economic opportunities for low skilled people are very, very small already and, and they are not growing. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's some hope and, and there's some, you know, also some, some negative yeah. outlooks there. And so, so you think the future of remote is sort of overstated in terms of how Silicon Valley is sort of uh, valuing it right now? Is that, is that correct? And if so, why? I think both over and understating it. I think that the number of people for whom will be able to, to work remotely will grow. I just don't think it's likely to be the people that Silicon Valley thinks it is, right? It's not the innovators. It's the, it's the you know, call center operators. And it's not going to look super nice, right? Like the jobs that you can easily just sort of not care about where they're at are sort of jobs that you can do crazy types of remote surveillance on. And, you know, you don't care. Like the reason why you have all these people in an office in the first place is so that the boss can be a boss. Um, but now software can be the boss, right? Like let's take, for example, Uber drivers. Uber drivers manager is not a person. It's a piece of software. Um, the Uber driver's software or the, the Uber software tells them when to go pick somebody up, when to stop, when to turn, you know, it's like quite controlling. Um, it doesn't require a human manager to be sitting there next to them, telling them those things. The software just does it. So I think like a lot of jobs actually turn out can, can be done that way. Uh, it's not super warm and fuzzy feeling. Um, innovation activities still straight up have to happen in person, right? Like ask any thought worker that's doing real innovative work as part of their jobs. It has gotten insanely hard to innovate right now unless you can do it solo and the best inventions don't happen solo. So yeah, I think it's understated in that like the trend actually could be like a huge hordes of people can ultimately be remote, but the highest value labor continues to, to probably wind up in cities. Totally. Ex explain the counter to that and why, why you think it's wrong or you well, know, the cities, the, specifically in terms of cities. The yeah, yeah. 
I mean, what people would say is like, look, like the we're we're doing what we're doing right now. This can be done remotely. We can totally jazz and innovate. Like we recorded the last podcast in person. Now we're doing it. You're in Arizona. I'm in San Francisco. Like we can totally do this. I think that's true. I think it's also that the societal scale infrastructure to do that just is like totally not set up. Like you and I are totally weird people, right? Like we like live on the internet. I've grown up on the internet. I've had friends my whole life that I've talked to mostly over text messages on the internet. And so it's like the fact that I'm capable of doing this is not reflective of your median person and the technology and sort of social norms are not there for the median person yet. That doesn't mean that it can't, that that won't always be true. I think that there exists a basket of technologies and social norms whereby geographic co-location is irrelevant. I do not think we have it yet. Before closing, I wanted to bring up an idea we've been sort of you know, riffing casually for, for a bit. But one thing that you're sort of getting excited a bit more about, like local politics, um, why don't you just talk about where you're excited, where, where you see opportunity? Yeah, share more. I, I can't speak for the localities outside of San Francisco, but in San Francisco, I find it so funny that the people I speak to, myself included, have this vision that's global and an impact even that's global. Like we have these levers that can shape the whole world, yet we have effectively no voice in our local political system, right? The voice of the people who produce the vast majority of the the wealth that's flowing into the city, which by the way, doesn't just flow to, to individuals that are working in the space like everybody on this call. It also flows to the service workers, right? For every dollar that a well-paid knowledge worker makes, it's something like five or eight dollars is sort of trickled or trickled is the wrong word to trigger a bunch of people with that word, but like is sort of, uh, there's like a, a money multiplier effect where five to $8 will go to the service economy. And people in places like San Francisco in service jobs have exceptionally high wages relative to people doing the same jobs in other places. Um, this is where people will school me on cost of living. I know that's what my business does. <laughs> All we do is cost of living uh, stuff. So the, the thing that I think is really interesting about this, though, is that, you know, we are, we, we, we have this massive effect for cities, but we're, at least in San Francisco, being treated like we're having a negative effect on the city and that the city, by and large, is politically controlled by people who are not the source of new wealth into the city. Uh, they're sort of redistributing it towards things that I don't think necessarily are I don't think they're like all bad. I'm not going to say like, oh, the city of, of San Francisco is you know, like a disaster. It's not a total disaster. But I think that the the tech voice should be heard in local politics. I think that in order to have a truly tremendous impact globally, we need to solve the problems here and we need to solve them through political voice, not pure philanthrop- philanthropy or, or, or deployment of capital, right? Like Apple is spending you know, billions of dollars on housing in the Bay Area. I think that's uh, just not the right strategy. Try lobbying to overturn the laws that are causing the massive uh, cost of living inflation as opposed to trying to solve the symptom, right? The common phrase is, you know, you can't mop up the ocean, but you can build levees, right? So, you know, we got to solve the root cause problem in, in, in the city. So yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in doing that, right? Like how can you overturn very specific laws, very specific zoning rules um, that cause housing to, to not be produced at adequate amounts? How do you put in place rules to increase things like micromobility and decrease things like open air drug use uh, such that we increase the livability of the city? I think San Francisco could be one of the greatest cities on the planet and it's decidedly not. 
And I think the things that are constraining it have nothing to do with economics and has everything to do with local politics. Yeah. And, and maybe just to um, double down for one more minute on what's your TLDR and why uh, healthcare, education, and housing are so much more expensive than, than they should be. Is cost disease a, a sufficient sort of reason? Or what, what, what do you think is the, the root reason? Well, if you have a market, then the price is what it should be, right? And if it's too high, it's because there's lack of innovation or undersupply. Um, but we don't have a market in any of those things, or at least non, we have non-functional markets. So the prices are whatever people basically can you know, politically rally for. Um, and that, that politically rallying doesn't necessarily mean going through the actual government, but like in the case of healthcare, there's this like crazy nest of both uh, the sort of oligopolistic insurance business, plus the oligopolistic hospital business, plus the government, all in this like weird intertwined nest, such that the number of degrees of separation between the person that is actually attempting to buy healthcare and the people that are paying for it are such that there is no market there. And so of course, the prices are totally insane. Um, in housing, it's actually a lot less complicated. It's just there's a, an exorbitant amount of red tape that drives up prices and in, you know, there actually is a solution to, you can make more land, you just build up, but it's in San Francisco illegal to build apartments on 76% of the city's land um, just by the law. It has nothing to do with the being geographically unacceptable. So, you know, there are solutions here. They often look like the opposite of what we've been doing. I think the way that we're heading in San Francisco and, and nationally is to just double down on the thing that caused the problem that to me seems totally insane. Uh, but, you know, there is a very large group of people that think that, you know, adding more of the same thing is actually a good thing. Um, and I'd like to, you know, try to put a voice of, of reason out there, just another, there's a lot of smart people saying the same thing, but just all uh, plus one. Plus one. Uh, my, my guest today has been uh, Sean Lanahan, co-founder and CEO of Placement. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the, on the program. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.